What we're talking about in this episode contains descriptions of anxiety and panic attacks, so please do what you need to do before listening. You can write the lifeline number down, 13 11 14, and keep it handy if the episode brings up any issues for you. The first time I ever experienced it or was even aware that I had any kind of anxiety was a panic attack, and that was in physics in grade 12. (laughs) And I think I'd been really behind in school for quite a while, and this just kind of made it like very clear that I was beyond catching up. So I experienced the cramping in my hands. They sort of, you know, my thumbs and my fingers came together. I remember the teacher was asking a question and she asked me and I must have had a look on my face that just, you know, told the story because she quickly said, oh, don't worry, and went to someone else and said, you know, if you need to go outside, go outside. I went out and and had the shortness of breath and the really sort of tense muscles and didn't know what was happening. And I walked to the nurse's office and I think there was just like a, a random visitor at the school that walked past and saw me. And I and she like was like, oh, just, you know, sit down. And so I sat on the grass and kind of went through it there with just this random person that passed by, which was nice. I didn't really have more panic attacks like that for a while. Um, it was sort of isolated, but yeah, it wasn't until years later that I started having them like every day. Yeah. A quarter of us have experienced an anxiety condition at some point in our lives, according to Beyond Blue. That's one in four of us, which means if it's not you, it's probably one of your mates. That anxiety could be coming from something stressful that's going on. Maybe it will kind of hang around. It doesn't necessarily need to be connected to the reality around us. It might be a base-level buzz, the constant scan of what's around you for a threat, or it could escalate into a full-blown panic. Or in Amy Brandon's case... It might be both. I think I was experiencing general anxiety all the time with like little just cherries of panic attack on top. I'm Stephen Stockwell and this is Doom Scroll Remedy, where we meet the people living through the existential threats that keep us up at night and the people from the University of Queensland trying to solve them. In this series, we're diving into direct threats to how we live and some things that are a little harder to pin down, like anxiety. That feeling you get when you spend too long thinking about bushfires and how there's just kind of plastic everywhere. It's the thing that, quite literally, keeps me up at night sometimes. I can get caught up in work, trying to solve problems, worrying about how things might go, so in this episode, we are magic school busting it into the brain and back in time to figure out why we're like this. But first, I want to chat to Amy a bit more because her situation got much worse before it got better. This is back when she was managing a music venue. I was working from usually about three or four in the afternoon to set up and then, you know, the doors would open at eight. Uh, You'd get your staff on, you'd do your writers, you'd have your sound check, you'd do all that. So that's all before doors even open and then I wouldn't leave until after we would close, so sometimes getting home at 5 or 6 a.m., Um, So it's about 12 hours. 
the anxiety would build before I had to go. So it would be being at home and knowing, like, you know, you look at the clock and you think, oh, I've got about an hour and a half till I have to be at work. And it would just start to creep then of just the the dread of having to go. And then, yeah, it would sort of work up. And I would always tend to have the panic attack around five o'clock at, at the venue. At that point, there's still not very many people around, so it's all right. And I would go and isolate and kind of a case of it being, you know, the thought of something worse than the actuality of it. So the thought of having to go to work, the thought of the doors opening, the thought of, you know, people could OD, people could get too drunk, people could get in a fight or like all of that was worse beforehand. And then as the night rolled out, it, w- it would be better because it would just pan out how it panned out and you deal with it as it comes. But yeah, it was the pr- predicting it ahead of time that really made me anxious. I've got a real mum question as well. Like how well were you kind of eating and sleeping? Oh, I was eating so well. I would eat a family block of chocolate and a bag of jellies every shift. I was eating so much sugar to get through it. And sleeping? Not sleeping great. At the time I was in this like very dodgy flat and had no curtains and it was a Queenslander with very poor insulation. So and that, this is going into December when it started. So, yeah, it was hot. I wasn't sleeping. Yeah, you know, when you put it all down like that, <laughs> it's very <laughs> obvious. <laughs> How bad did it get? It got particularly bad in a week where we had four international acts every night of the week, and I think they were all sold out. So it was knowing that it was going to be really, really long days, really, you know, uh, high pressure, international tour managers, like had to be tight kind of thing. And I think that just was the end of it for me. Like (laughs) there was too much pressure. Um, I went to my GP and I think I was kind of looking for when you're a kid and you're, you're feeling sick and you go to your parents and they say like, okay, it's all right, you can stay home and you and you feel like safe and someone's like, oh, you're sick, I'll take care of you. I think when I went to my GP, I just wanted him to like look at me and be like, it's okay, you can't do it, We're, like don't worry. And I, that's what I got. He, he said, you need to go to the hospital um, and I don't want you to drive yourself there. So I'm going to call your parents. I'm a 27-year-old woman at this point. I'm going <laughs> to call your parents and... They can drive you because I don't think you should be driving a car with how you are at the moment. I was crying and having a panic attack at the doctor's office during the consultation, so I think I presented quite a scary picture. I was admitted into the hospital, yeah, in the um, psych ward, and they take away your phone. (laughs) You're not allowed to have your phone at the psych ward, so I was sort of... uh, My boyfriend at the time told work that I was at the hospital for um, endometriosis, which I have, and they knew that. He was sort of communicating with work and said, oh, Amy's Amy's sick, she's at the hospital. And it was totally fine. They just covered for me. Like, (laughs) I wasn't there and it was fine. (laughs) Must have only been three nights because as soon as I got out of the hospital, 
I'd had a nice little rest. I'd talked to psychologists. I'd started on, I, they started me on medication at that point, got out of hospital and I went to work and said, oh, I'm back. And they were like, oh, you know, you can go home. We thought, we thought you were out anyway, so we've got people on. And I was like, no, no, I'll do it. <laughs> the next day, Amy, after all of that, you got out of hospital and you went straight back to work. Amy stayed in that job as well for another nine months. Things didn't really get any better either. The short break helped for a little bit, but in the end she realised that it really was quite bad for her. I imagine this moment as some kind of huge relief, the most satisfying of deep breaths and exhales. But it was kind of bittersweet. Amy was really proud of what she'd accomplished at her job, but no one at work really knew the toll that it had taken on her. We got interviewed for the birthday of the venue and I did the interview after I'd already given notice, I think. And I just, yeah, you read the interview and all the questions, I'm just like frothing on how much like I love it and how good it is. And they say like, oh, what's been the hardest thing? And I, I think I answered like trying to get the karaoke microphone out of the hands of, you know, insert local indie musician. And it's so funny that that was what I said at the time. (laughs) And then in reality, it's like the hardest bit was probably, you know, the daily panic attacks and the breakdown of my relationship and the uh, hospitalization. But yeah, I'll just make a gag instead. I've known Amy for a while and it's always a bit of a shock to hear when someone you know has been through a rough experience like this. But then you remember just how common this is. Thankfully, though, her life has changed a lot since. I get sleep at night time. It just has changed completely. I, I got another job. I don't work nights. I don't have the pressure of the financial success of a venue on my shoulders. I don't have the, you know, responsibility for people's health or well-being on on my shoulders. Yeah, it's having less responsibility, which is really good. I don't get anxious before I have to go to work. Do you still get anxious, though? Yes. But generally, if I treat myself right, I generally don't get it. And when I do, I'm much more able to just talk myself down and talk myself through it. And yeah, I don't experience panic attacks like that at all. So that's what anxiety and panic attacks are like to live with. Sometimes it can feel like such an overwhelming, even alien experience that it's hard to imagine that your own body, your own brain even, is causing it. But I don't like to think that our brain is deliberately working against us. So to find out what's happening up there, we caught up with Dr Sue Tai. Sue is a group leader at the Queensland Brain Institute, researching the neurobiology of stress. When we experience anxiety, it's usually uh, a situation that has caused us to feel vulnerable or exposed and uh, a sense of stress sort of can come over somebody. So they feel a sense of fear. So immediately during that response, uh, adrenaline is released from the adrenal glands, um, cortisol surges, and the brain um, has very rapidly, to trigger all of that, the brain has rapidly recognised that there's a potential threat in in the situation. Um, And and that triggers the amygdala to become activated and that initiates this circuit of, of physiological changes and then the whole body responds. 
Let's think back to Amy when she's feeling the cramping in her hands. The thing that I would always notice first was the hands turning into like little crab claws. Your fingers would cramp up and I wouldn't be able to like open my palm out flat. So that can be because of the overload of adrenaline and and cortisol. So the brain and the body is preparing you, as I said, to escape. Um, But if you're standing still, you've got all of this energy available to you and it's not being utilised. So it's ultimately trying to get uh, get the body moving and get it out of that threatening situation. Um, so even things like blood glucose will become rapidly elevated under these conditions. That's something that the body does to fuel this escape response. And uh, when that's not being utilised, if somebody is, is sort of stuck in that situation, can't escape, um, there's no outlet for that. So it really builds up inside. The chest tightness is a big one. That can often happen because of the rapid effects that are happening on the heart itself. Um, So it's rapidly changing um, its rate of, um, you know, how rapidly it's beating. Blood flow is changing and there's a tightening in the chest that comes with changes to how um, uh, people are breathing and using oxygen. So there's there's a lot of overlap in the symptoms that somebody is experiencing in those two moments. And um, it, it is just something that I think people can learn to recognise. And I think because they're in a state of overwhelming fear, it's natural to sort of go to worst case scenario as well. You know, what might be happening here is potentially life-threatening because the body's looking in that moment for something that is life-threatening. How does the body start to deal with that? How does it start to clear out the adrenaline, the cortisol and get itself back to normal? So the key thing here is for the body to know that it is safe. So that is something that can be very hard to fight mentally. Um, so to think through that situation, it's it's possible. But as I mentioned, that, that alarm system is on and it's shouting so much louder than any other sort of higher order thinking that somebody could do. To telling themselves and learning that they're in a safe situation can often come over time. Um, but more acutely, actually physiologically shutting it off is perhaps the fastest way to shut down that response. And deep breathing is actually the body's way of knowing it's safe. So if you're in, a, in an actual threatening position or situation that, as I said before, that breathing rate becomes very sh- shallow and, and rapid to really try to get as much oxygen into the system. But that low, deep breathing switches off that stress response. The body knows that it's in a safe situation um, and it starts to wind everything else down and that can feed then back to the brain and the brain can again sort of shut down that alarm signal. Yeah, you just need to be able to bring your breathing down. And once I'd had uh, seen, like, psychologists, I had, like, a little mantra thing, which was the, you know, I am safe, I am calm. And that was to try and, you know, get your brain to realise there was no issue. So, like, yeah, that would be something that I used after I was aware of it and just be like, yeah, I'm safe, I'm calm, I'm safe, I'm calm. It is very simple. And it... it, it sort of have come to this understanding or it makes so much sense from that evolutionary perspective of what this system is is here to do. So it really is here to help you escape from that saber-toothed tiger. Um, and it, it provides that rapid response to allow you to either fight it head on or flee from it as fast as you can. And then when you're safe, you can have that deep breathing, you can relax, you can rest, you can recover, and all the other systems can come back online. You've, you've essentially survived that threat. But in our day-to-day life, we're not faced with these threats. And often they're chronic or they're repetitive or there's no way to really know when you're safe. 
and, and to switch that off. So it, we have to then leverage our understanding of the evolutionary basis of this stress system and essentially sort of uh, attempt to reprogram it ourselves. I've been thinking a lot about that saber-toothed tiger recently. It's actually really helped me put a lot of my problems in perspective. And while this is a brain thing, the root cause of anxiety can be traced back to when that tiger was an actual problem that we had to worry about. Human beings are unique to the best of our knowledge on this planet by virtue of our capacity to live in the future. Now, this capacity is super important, and I could give you examples about how our chimp cousins are hamstrung by their inability to live in the future. So there's enormous gains that come about by living in the future, the primary one being that we can simulate what might happen and then plan for it and, in fact, try to adjust it, try to change the future to make it more suitable for us. But there's a cost to living in the future, and that's envisioning all the things that can go wrong. So my dogs live in the present, and they're not the slightest bit worried about tomorrow because they're not capable of conceiving it. We live in the future, and so we're very capable of conceiving the myriad of things that could go wrong. And, of course, the most important one, which we know is going to go wrong, is that someday we won't be here anymore. And so human beings are subject to knowledge that no other animal, to the best of our knowledge, has. And that knowledge is really scary stuff. And that's where anxiety comes from. Bill von Hippel is a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland. And you know he's good because he's written a whole book on this exact topic. Our ability to imagine the future is outrageously useful. It unlocks so much potential for humans. But like all superpowers, it carries a curse. If I had to hamstrung your ability to live in the future, you'd be devastated. You couldn't even get by, especially in the complex human world that we live in now. But you pay an emotional cost. And remember, evolution is, isn't focused on how you feel. It's focused on getting used to surviving and reproducing. All other animals, they live in today, and, and then when they find a mate, they're great. And, and so, but they don't, think they're, they don't sit there going, oh, what if I never find a mate? Because they're not capable of thinking that thought, right? And, and so we have sources of anxiety that they can't even imagine. Those sources of anxiety play an important role. You know, we, we tend to think about emotions, the good ones are good and the bad ones are bad. But evolution gave us these bad emotions, these unpleasant emotions for a reason. They motivate you away from doing the wrong thing. And so when you go to a party and you make a complete fool of yourself and then you go home and you go, oh my God, I can't believe I said that or did that. And then the next party's coming up. Well, you've learned your lesson. You won't do it again. The cost might be anxious feelings. Uh-oh, I've got to get back together with those people and they remember what a schmuck I was or what I did when I was drunk or whatever the case might be. So evolution's pushing you in these ways. We, we feel guilt. We feel shame. We feel embarrassment. Those are super important emotions. Humans who can't experience those are called psychopaths. So they, they really matter. This is super important. But, of course, they're not pleasant for the person feeling it. And that's where we get caught up is we want to minimize those things. But, of course, we need those things. We need to leverage them to make ourselves better humans. But part of the problem here is this mismatch between the world we live in now and the world that we evolved in. So anxiety is, against all odds, actually quite useful. But as I sit on the top floor of this flash building in a studio with microphones and gadgets all around me, it is quite obvious that a fair bit has changed since our primary concern was running away from that saber-toothed tiger. Basically, these problems got smaller. Or actually, not smaller. They just sort of changed shape. But even then, that doesn't make me feel any better because now I'm just anxious about what I'm going to be worrying about next decade and then the decade after that. 
It's human nature that everything is relative. And so uh, as the really, really big problems go away, by which I mean something wants to kill me, then I don't ever think, gee, something wants to kill me, but I'm bothered that something wants to hurt me. And then when nothing wants to hurt me, but it wants to hurt my feelings, I'm bothered by that, right? So it, and it, it looms just as large. Like I probably am just as bothered by the kid in my fourth grade class who wants to hurt my feelings as my osteopathic ancestor was by the saber tooth who wants to eat him, right? So that that relativity is part of human nature. You know, we always experience things not as they are at an absolute level, but how they change from the environment that it was the moment before. We've evolved to do that for a very good reason. But does that mean we'll never be happy? No. Most humans are happy most of the time. Now, we all have this base rate happiness that, unfortunately, it's, it's genes play a big role in that. So about half the story of how happy you are is, is your genetic endowment. The other half the story is the environment that you get fortunate to live in a good one or unfortunate to live in a bad one. The key issue there is that we also evolved, and this is what throws people for a loop. They most people are happy most of the time, but most people still want to be happier. I mean, I'm happy now, I think. I mean, what is happiness? No, wait, never mind, not the time. Let's think about this evolutionary stuff instead. We now know where this comes from, the body and the brain adapting together to survive a threat. So we just need to figure out how we stayed in mental shape to run from that tiger. For some people, a mental fitness routine might involve psychologists, medication, or other strategies to manage anxiety. But if we talk super basic, the starting point could actually be keeping your body clock or circadian rhythm in check. Some of our research really focuses on just how changing the way that the stress hormones are released over the course of the 24-hour circadian cycle can have a simple effect on how the body is primed to respond to stress and how it utilises energy during stress. Uh, and how it then in turn copes under those circumstances. Um, and so even things like getting a really good night's sleep is really important for allowing that physiology to know that it's safe. So doing everything you can to switch off um, anything that's disruptive. So whether it's um, worrying thoughts, whether it's looking at a, um, a, a iPad or a, a screen that's releasing blue light that's also triggering that um, HPA access to be online is also really important. Um, making sure that you're not having coffee at the end of the day because that's stimulating cortisol and adrenaline to be released as well. There's a lot of little things we can do to even just the normalisation of that circadian rhythm to really help um, manage that or, or build resilience to that anxiety. Um, things like some people will feel a lot of anxiety if they drink a cup or two of coffee in the morning because that's stimulating that adrenaline and stimulating that cortisol and that may prime them to be on alert. And so maybe less of a trigger is needed to activate that system under those conditions. Um, and so it is very individual and there are a lot of little things that can be done over the course of a, of a day to, to enhance your physiological resilience to stress. As Sue was telling me this, I really started to think about my life and reflected on a number of things that I do, which are probably pretty unhealthy. And when you think about Amy, who was working through the night and stressing when she should have been sleeping, you start to see some of those contributing factors. When I spoke to Amy about this, it wasn't the first time she'd thought about a lot of it. She'd spent time with psychologists trying to understand what was causing her anxiety and found the explanations actually pretty satisfying. It's it's actually really fun to become more aware of what feels good to think, what feels bad to think, what ideas you hold that you're not that cognizant of. Like it's 
it's actually really fun when you start breaking it down because you obviously you learn about yourself, but it, then you realize that you can, I don't know, change, change it as well. Like I've found so much satisfaction in being able to work out what makes me feel bad. I find it really interesting. I really hope that this has been as helpful for you as I found it. Maybe not. I mean, understanding why you're feeling bad isn't exactly a cure, but maybe it's got you thinking in a different way. Finally, though, I am so glad that Amy is in a good place now. And if this is something that you're working through or living with, there are plenty of people around to chat to about it. Remember, one in four of us are going to deal with this at some point. There's also Lifeline on 13 11 14 who can help as well. Make sure you follow Doom Scroll Remedy in your favourite podcast app so you can join me on the magic school bus to solve our biggest problems like bushfires and climate change and why people get caught up in conspiracy theories. I think he's looking for a reality that makes sense to him, maybe. I think he's looking for something that he can understand. Like, I think that he's maybe looking for something that makes him feel like he has a place or has, like, people around him who have the same beliefs as him. I think he's just looking for connection. Like, I don't think that he's looking to start a fight with me and I think, don't think he's looking for people to call him crazy. <laughs> Certainly not, you know. Doom Scroll Remedy is a podcast from the University of Queensland. It's produced by Dead Set Studios. It's hosted by me, Stephen Stockwell. Produced by Grace Pashley. Executive producer is Rachel Fountain. The sound design is by Chrissy Miltiadu. The consulting producer is Zoe McDonald. And the commissioning editor is Greta Uses.